Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Hey, listen, folks, the real estate industry is an essential component of the U.S. economy. Back in 2018, it contributed $1 trillion. Get that. That's 6.2% of the GDP. Commercial real estate activities support approximately about 12.5 million jobs and approximately $240 billion in salaries and operations. So while the industry might be lucrative, you have to know the right strategies to put in place to help you close more deals, not just in real estate, but in business too. And we've got some real real estate gurus and experts in business. Tim and Julie Harris, they're best-selling authors and co-host of a very successful podcast right here on C-Suite Radio called Real Estate Coaching. They're joining us live from Puerto Rico. And if I were them, I'd probably be on the beach, but they're joining with us. Tim and Julie, thanks for joining us as part of our digital discussion. Yeah, thank you for having thank us. You. And we are going to be on the beach as soon as we're done here. So thank you for reminding me. Yeah, I can't blame you for that. I, I'm going to be outside in South Dakota shoveling snow. But nonetheless, there we go. Tell us a little bit more about your background. How did the both of you get started in real estate? Was it one or the other, or did you both jump in it together? Well, we've been married for 30 years this year. Um, we And we started basically bought our first investment property when we were 22 and 23, basically right out of college. Wow. Um, and so our first year, when we got licensed, our first year in real estate, we sold over 100 houses. Now, this is, again, quite a while ago. I'm 51, and I'm not supposed to say her age, but I will say she's 35 for the 15th time. You can do that. I like to repeat that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> that age. That age. Yeah. yeah. Well, so in any event, um, we, uh, our first year in business in real estate, we sold over 100 houses, which was a record then and still is a record now. Individual houses, this is what, wasn't a subdivision where we got lucky. Or, or a building or something right, like that. Right. These were individual sellers. And then we sold uh, between 100 and 200 houses per year for basically the next 10 years. And then the coaching industry and the real estate uh, industry, the coaching industry was starting to develop inside the real estate industry. And we sort of stumbled into it. I mean, that's, that's, it's not a real romantic story <laughs> how we ended up in it. And the coaching, a lot of our clients that we had back then, this was in the late nineties, we still have now. So uh, what was the first property you bought? Was it a house or yeah, was house. it a, a commercial? Yeah. 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 And we, you, we, what was the exact price? I bet you, you know, the exact I price. Of what you paid. 71, 575. And guess what? And what, year, what, what year was that? Oh gosh, 92? 92 or three. Oh yeah. gosh, I remember my first house. It was fifty three thousand, and the interest rate was twenty one percent, and I got a low interest rate of of fourteen percent back then. Well, great. But you're bringing up a really good yeah. point, though. People were still buying and selling despite higher interest rates, too. Which you should. You Absolutely. still should. Yes. Yeah, because Absolutely. it's the one thing. And look at COVID during. I mean, look, there's been a lot of changes with COVID, right? In terms of property, I drive around the city of Sioux Falls, or I was back in New York a couple of weeks, and I see a lot of shuttered up places right now. But that's going to come back, right? Uh, well, I mean, is it going to come back? When is it going to come back? I know, and then we you can get into a conversation about inflation versus appreciation. We could talk about all that stuff. Um, well, I don't want to make Greg feel bad, but like if you're in Manhattan right now, what's going to be the thing that's going to trigger people to want to move back? There, there's a, there's, I don't know how to describe it other than it wasn't since the 
what was the last big uh, migration. migration that happened? It was all the way back in the Industrial Revolution, really, when people started moving away from the farms and into the cities. What you're seeing is a reverse migration that's being fueled by essentially the new expectations people have for their lives post-COVID. Um, you know, you have Elon Musk that's going to make connectivity via, you know, satellites available to everyone in every corner of the planet. You're having now businesses that are, let's say, well, Julie and I, all of our staff and our employees, we have people uh, in the United States, everywhere. people everywhere around the planet. And they're all virtual and we meet on Zooms and we and, and EXP Realty, a company that we work with, they're it's 100% virtual. So the reality of it is, is that now that people are freed up from having to live in particular areas for the sake of employment and social connections, and now that, you know, the idea of like our little girl was going to online school for the past year and a half. Well, I think that there was always a sort of a cloud over online education, but it's not there anymore. So, That's so many expected. things, right. So many things have changed that it's going to make it so that people who maybe lived in Manhattan and the Upper East Side have got these, you know, live, loved living there, the whole thing, love the lifestyle, but maybe they've always wanted to live down Charleston, South Carolina, or maybe they've always wanted to live in a place like Florida or whatever. And maybe they thought they had to wait till they're a certain age to live that lifestyle, but now they can live wherever they want to. And, you know, employers like you and like Julie and I, we don't care where people live, provided they get their work done. Our newest coaching client is actually in Guam, yeah. for example. Sure. Yeah. So, and you can do it, uh, yeah, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Sure. You don't have to necessarily trek into the office like we used to. And, right. you know, I mentioned that real estate is a really, really lucrative industry, rather lucrative. And can, you can make some you can make some good gains, some bad gains, depending on how, how much you really study it and do it in the right deal. But it's about closing the deal. Give me three strategies that anyone could use to close a sale. Buyer or seller? <laughs> both. Give them to me on both sides. Oh, well, geez, working with buyers nowadays, it's a bloodbath, That's honestly. <laughs> working on the buyer side of the transaction right now for real estate agents, it's the biggest pain point in our uh, with all of our customers. All of their clients. stress comes from the buyer side. Yep. So I why? would say strategy. Why? why? I want to know why. Well, strategy number one is find what your client's looking for. That's why. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. They don't know what they want. They don't know what their conditions no, of satisfaction are. It's not are. that. It's not that. They can't find a house, period. We have record yeah. low inventory virtually everywhere except parts of Miami and of course, New York. So finding what the client is looking for. And, you know, we have a, a lot of agents that are so addicted to only having the MLS when in fact, there's so many transactions that never hit the MLS. They're not supposed to be pocket listings, but there are pocket listings. They're, they're exchanging property amongst their own past clients, their own centers of influence, a lot of new construction, but builders can't keep up. Builders are way behind. Some of the builders have waiting lists of more than 200 people. So it's going to be a while before, even if you're somebody that is going to build. Yes. So finding inventory in the first place is the biggest stress. That's the big one. Well, I know in Sioux Falls, and I use Sioux Falls as an example, but we're kind of an island. But in that island, we kind of see the good, the bad, and the ugly of everything. We never go up too much. We never go down. But right now, there's 87 houses on the market in a city of you know a few hundred thousand people. Usually, there's three times that on the market and there's only 87 houses on the market today. So that's a big thing. What about on the seller side? What would be my strategies to close the sale? Well, the sellers have the same problems. A lot of cases they put their house for sale, but they don't have a house to move into. So this lack of inventory problem is affecting, it's, it's causing it's the market. Sides. It's on both sides. And that's the biggest pain point. Now your question though, there's not one, there's not one real estate market, but there's also not one answer to your question because depending on what your price point is, like if you take, for example, uh, you know, Upper East Side or, you know, Greenwich, Connecticut or, you know, some place that's where people have multiple homes, that, that's a completely different strategy when you're dealing with the customer in the high end. 
But if you're dealing with a normal person that's uh, like having to move from one house to the other, they've got a family, they need to establish where they're going to live. On the seller side of things, sellers, they, they basically run the field. And you're seeing agents who know how to work. So if you're not, no, if you don't know how to work with sellers in this market, if that's not your primary focus, it always should have been, you know, the old saying in real estate is you got a list to last. But if you're not focusing all your best energies on going after listings right now, you you're basically you're at risk. You're at risk. You're at risk of becoming obsolete. So so imagine a pendulum, um, and this is like so. This was basically the real estate crash, and maybe this was like 2008, 2009, and it was favoring obviously uh, buyers. And now what's happened is it's you. I don't think it's overcorrected. I think it's there's market forces that are you know mostly led by demographics. But over here is the extreme sellers market. Over here, you're seeing, uh, like in the United States, I don't know, not very many people are aware of this, but in the United States, there's a, an we're not going to talk about commission rates, but there's an implied commission rate, and that commission is usually split between the buyer's agent and the seller's agent. So only in the United States and a few other countries in the world do you have a, uh, an entitlement to the real estate commission that goes automatically to the buyer's agent. In other words, if you're in England, there is no buyer's agency. There's just the listing agent. Um, they call it estate agents, right? And mm -hmm. that's the way it works in most of the, of the world. But in the United States, there's two commissions. The commission on the buyer agent side is being reduced. It's being absolutely obliterated right now because the sellers, market forces basically, are making it so that buyer's agents uh, are, are, they're offering- They're commodity. They're commodity. There's, there's yeah. somebody standing- you, in gotta, you gotta be able to have the inventory. If you got the inventory, you got the power, yep. right? That's one. And then second, I gotta imagine that digital is playing into this too. Meaning, as you said early, Julie, more and more houses don't make the MLS market. So what they're doing is they're put buyer for they're selling it themselves, right? Sure. Or they're selling yeah. it in some other method. So mm -hmm. I would imagine the ability for, you know, me to go out and just advertise, put up my own website, do all that is yes. a lot better and easier than, especially in this market, than it ever has been. Well, and people's comfort level buying homes online is through the roof. I can't remember the statistic, but it was between 30 and 40% of recent closings were found online and closed online and a huge percent we're not even seen physically by the buyer. That's oh, amazing. wow. That's that a, now that that's surprising that they've not been seen because I'll guarantee Absolutely. you my wife is going to go see that house or I like to well, see I'm going to go see that building, right? I, I want to yeah. see it. I want to walk in. I want to see what the doors look like. I want to see what the elevators are like. Sure. I want to know all those kinds of things. So I probably advocate for people. You probably want to go touch it and feel it, but I get what they're doing. Is that because a lot of oh, homeowners it. have owned more than one house? Well, it's, so they've I'm done it before. It's COVID, it's comfort level, and it's also technology. You know, some of the tours that are out there, you can fly around inside the house, you can turn yeah. the camera around, you can technology. do Google Earth and see what the neighborhood looks like. You know, that comfort level, I think, is really there, and it wasn't so much pre-COVID. Well, yeah, exactly. you can see my pickup truck in the driveway where I park it all the time through Google Earth. It's amazing. Yeah, too. <laughs> C-Suite Radio. Let me Let's ask go. you another question. Uh, what about tr trends, Tim? What do you see that's going to continue to materialize that what what has materialized and that's going to go into 2021 and beyond? A booming seller's market. That's not going to change anytime soon. There's a lot of people that are um, trying to you know stoke the fire because there's going to be a real estate crash or correction. That's not going to happen. There's absolutely people will point out the you know number of people coming off forbearances and all these other types of things. But the reality of it is, is what was the statistics? Almost like 90%. It's 87% of people are already off of their forbearance, meaning Remember the, the special programs, where you, you could put your home in forbearance, you could skip right. those payments, they could get it on the back end of the deal. 
And so the, the thought was, well, what's going to happen when all those come due? Are people going to be able to get caught up? Are they going to resume their payments? And already 87% of those forbearances have resumed their payment at the level that it was. And what, so what is the point of that? That shows you that we're not going to have a big wave of foreclosures as a result of the pandemic. In the beginning of the pandemic, people didn't know how that was going to go. Now we they have were freaking out. Going, Most people yeah, were freaking, freaking out, out right? Yeah. I mean, they were really freaking out. Landlords, everybody was doing that. And people like running businesses. We were worried about sure. whether or not we could make those payments. So I think we all said, take it. And I told people to take those forbearances. If they're giving them to you, take them. We because, did too. Yeah. Yeah. You want that Absolutely. cash. Put that well, cash or something. Well, I just wrote another big tip though. You said New York and Miami are going to be real buyer's market. I've been thinking about buying in Miami for a long time. I think this is the time. So I'm well, going to get, get down we have, there. We have hundreds of agents down there. Um, so we're very familiar with that market, but I'll tell you the housing market in Miami is incredibly hot. The towers market in Miami is not. Hot. So people are moving out of the towers and they're buying single family houses. Sure. So if you want to get a smoking deal, you can primarily in the towers. Of course, there's a little, you know, little aberrations where the markets are really strong in the towers. Primo views will always sell for primo money. But at the end of the day, that's the, ma that's the major trend in Miami. Now you can say it started because of COVID, but I bet you it's more about demographics, which goes to um, really, why is this going on? You could say interest rates are low, and that definitely lends to it. But really, what's going on is we're dealing with a, you know, a, probably a, a this demo, this demographic shift that's happening right now with, you know, the obviously you have the millennials and you have the Generation Z and you have the baby boomers and you have all these people that are wanting to buy and sell real estate and you have the low interest rates. That's what's causing. It's like the perfect storm, really. Really, to keep is. it hot. And well, I got to think about this. Time this soon. This Miami thing, I was looking at staying at the Ritz down on South Beach, and my yeah. room was going to cost me like two to three thousand dollars a night. Well, I can make a good good payment probably on a new condo somewhere else if yeah. I stay enough nights. Well, we'll have to figure. I'm going to figure that one out. Well, Let so me ask by, another. By the way, on that building, I happen to know something about that building. You actually can get a really good buy in there for sure. I know exactly. Well, that might be another one. So we'll we'll, we'll talk after the show. A trade some right. more secrets. This is the power of the C-suite network right here. I, I know a guy. That's the way it is. You know, it's not just like your uncle. It's we have executives who really know the other executives. What do you see as the most common mistakes that sales professionals in the real estate market make? Oh, we can go on forever. But buying yeah. leads, not learning how to basically yeah. uh, self-generate their own business, buying leads. Being real salespeople with real skills. Right. And being focused on being of service, of helping their client, but having the skills to actually execute on that. So to go back to our previous conversation, as a buyer's agent, for a long time, you could survive just, you know, you could show six houses. One of them would stand out. You never really had to become a listing agent because there was inventory and houses kind of sold themselves if it was right. Okay. Now, when there's you know 20 offers for every one available listing, if you only know buyers, you're going to lose most of the time unless you get your strategy together so that you can truly be of service to that client. Well, because what happens is clients will give up on that agent once they lose two, three, four times. So, but right. the, on, the whole circle where this all goes is learn to be a listing agent. Yes. And even talking about how to help yeah. buyers be successful in this market is it almost- It all leads back to being a listing right, agent. Right, because it's almost an act of futility because you we have clients that have, they'll take, you know, obviously the list of house and they'll get like 30 or 40 offers in on that house. 
And so, you know, the reality of it is, and this market's not changing. There is going to be no dark, there's no zombie apocalypse or, you know, locusts that are coming our way anytime soon. Well, if you're, if you're yeah. an insider too, if you're that selling guy, if you're a selling agent or the selling listing agent, listing I don't agent. know the terms of, I, I'm not in the industry like okay. you, but, but let's imagine I'm that person, that, that man or that woman. I can, the you know, 24 hours before I start pushing it out there, I could be calling all my great clients that I know who are looking and already have the thing sold before the thing really goes public, really? Of course, that's you, happening yeah. a lot. And what's more is, remember, you had a seller that was ready to list a house with uh, their house with you, but they were worried about where they're going to move to. You list a house that might be a good up leg, move up house for them, or even move down house for them. Now you have, you can create multiple One, transactions. For sure. Well, not yeah. just that, you're selling your listing to that buyer, and then you're, you know, probably doing that over and over again. And these transactions, one of the, the ridiculously low days in the market is because listing agents are controlling right. the market right now. And that's not going to change anytime soon. Until the you, pendulum starts correcting, you're going to see more and more uh, essentially depreciation of the buyer's agent's business model for sure. You mentioned, you mentioned leads, buying leads. And I always see people do that from time to time. What, regardless of whether you're an agent, but what we could say this for any business, what's your lead generation strategy and how would you approach those qualified leads and convert them into customers? Because it's about discovery and then it's about conversion. So what would be your lead generation strategy? So in real estate, you don't have to search for sellers that, that want people that want to sell their house. They're already there. They self-identify. There are, there are clear, distinct places you can go to uh, get lists of sellers that want to sell their house today. Your job is to learn how to basically directly, proactively contact those folks and get them to list their house with you and do business with you. So finding the ready, willing, and able seller is not a problem. That is a unique thing about real estate that when people and other businesses click, when that clicks, like if you're selling widgets or whatever, you've got to go and you know find the market. You have to create the market. You have to create the product in some cases. In real estate, all you've got to do essentially is learn how to directly contact the people that already have their hands in their air and say, yes, I want to sell my house. But to your previous question, which is really great, is you have the normal approach that most people are taking, you know, in books and all kinds of different things nowadays that people are talking about, is they all are about marketing. They're all about buying business. Buying business will always leave you beholden to whom you're spending your money with to buy the business. Our approach has been, always will be, you have to learn how to proactively generate your own business. So we want you to be proactively generation-based. And if you want to then enhance it with marketing, you can, and marketing and branding and all that. But you have to primarily, you have to be 100% uh, focused on becoming a proactive lead generator first. But that's true. We have coached people that are in different businesses. We've had people that sell jets. We've had people that sell luxury cars. We've had people that sell all kinds of different things. And every single one of them, they know that intuitively. If you're at the top of your game, it's because you know how to proactively lead generation. You're not buying business. That's just the bottom line. So instead of that Glenn Gary Ross movie, we're always be closing, always be looking for those leads, always you be gotta find them to close them. Yeah, you gotta find them. That's the name them. of the game. I and I and I totally with you 100%. I'm constantly looking for new, new and new, you know, faces, new and new places to be able to go to. And I'm writing those down constantly. So I couldn't agree more. Well, one of the things, the tools that you've been using to get your message out is by is through podcasting. Why did you choose? Uh, why did you choose podcasting for that? 
We are we, we like actually working yep. together on the podcast, so we it's have really, we have good reports. Best and we part like, of our day. It, it's, yeah, it's the best part of our day. Frankly, we enjoy doing it, but also because um, our message in our industry our industry right now is all about buying business. If you listen to anybody else who is selling uh, any kind of coaching, they, people look for the easy button. If right. I just sign up with this, they'll rain leads on me, and then I get to sift and sort them out. I throw them into a drip system, and somebody will want my help. And so a lot of the people, people believe a lot of the people who listen to our podcast and then decide to do business with us. They've already been up and down the mountain with all these lead buying, you know, stuff. Or what I, Tim, I call those false prophets. That is those yes, definitely what exactly. they are. And, and you I, can spell it either way as a biblical prophet or prophets, P-R-O-F-I-T. Yeah, exactly. But that's what these people do. And they prey on these people all the time. And real estate, exactly. here, here's an interesting thing. Julie and I did this research. The average age of historically has been in and out of the business within 24 months. Julie and I, through anecdotal information, basically just using our own databases, we are able to see that the average time that an agent staying in the business has actually been sure. dropping since the wow. advent of all this buying leads. Because they can blow their money faster. And that's what happens. Yeah. And they never learned it. They never learned the skills. And it's this interesting fact that the lowest quality lead you can buy is one that you buy from the internet because they're the least motivated because they start their search online for a house. So when someone goes to, you know, realtor.com or whatever, they're the ones that are just getting started. Those aren't the people. And again, we're talking about buyers again. So I'm just telling you, talking about buyers right now in this market is an act of futility, right? What you got to be focusing on is going after the sellers, learning how to actually proactively go after the sellers and, you know, be of service to them. And, you know, that's really what we teach. That's the heart of our coaching business. Well, I, I, Jim Costello, who's in Sioux Falls, who's been a lifelong friend of mine, must be taking your courses. Because every time I see him, and I've known him for 40 years, he come, every time I see him, he says, hey, you ready to sell? You ready yeah. to sell? You ready <laughs> to sell? one of our he, scripts, but it's good. No, yeah, but, well, but, but, no, but we're friends. He can say it like that, man. Yeah, he's yeah. the one that sold the last couple of my houses that way, too. Because they go, yeah, I wasn't ready. But since you've asked, yeah, what the heck? You know, it's exactly what happens. And every time he's helped me upgrade, by the way, he must be taking your courses because he's helped me upgrade to a new place somewhere else. So yeah. he was always the guy on both sides of that thing. Well, so let me give you a suggestion. Ask him, or you can ask us too, to help you find an agent in Miami if you're serious about buying something down there. Yeah. Well, we will. We'll do that. We'll, we'll yeah. circle back on that. C-Suite Radio. Is the podcasting been good for you? Oh yeah, it's fantastic. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's open. We did we've been doing podcasting since 2014. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, when did pod Jeff? I don't even know. When it, did it, it about about 2008 is when you first started seeing podcasting just start, but nobody knew how to spell it back then. In 2014, quite frankly, most people didn't either. You were very early adopters in that. And of course, you've got that long tail going for you now, too, because everybody's seen it. You've got all that history and all that library. You know, but it's still wide open. If you look at podcasting as an adult, right now we're still a young teenager. You know, so there's a lot of room for podcasting, and there's going to be a great deal more shows coming. Yeah, you know, Clubhouse proves your point, frankly. If you look at Clubhouse, which you know what that is, yeah. that is showing that people want to uh, receive their information through the spoken word, and yeah. and that's what's really for us to be part of that is really incredible. It you know, seeing what seeing how fast Clubhouse has gone from zero to hero. And seeing, Crazy. and we're getting more podcast listeners from the fact that we're participating in Clubhouse. You know, everything's going to be all. So, look, if you think about, for example, Amazon Echo and, you know, Hey Siri and all that. Cross pollinating that, everything. It, it's all spoken word, right? So, people are getting used to, and all the technologies adapting towards the spoken word. And yeah. so, it's very reasonable to believe, like, you're going to, that's going to be the preferred method for people to disseminate and also to receive uh, content. 
It's much more timely too. And we were talking the other day about how quickly it seems that 2021 is unfolding. Like, how is it second quarter already? Yeah. When did that happen? <laughs> and maybe that's because 2020 was like a decade long, okay, in yeah. comparison. So who knows? And I think that that's contributing to people wanting real-time information, like, you know, Clubhouse, you're either in or you're out. Our podcast, we try to be very timely, understanding what they're going through, helping them navigate that. And of course, being there, if things change, we're going to be right on that front line. We're monitoring all of those things. That's why we know, like, you know, what happened with the forbearances? Is there really a big foreclosure thing coming? We can confidently say, no, there isn't, because we study that so we can be of service to our listeners. We love podcasting because we can reach so many more people. You see, you know, the numbers versus, you know, we, we used to do a daily motivational message before podcasting. It was only three to five minutes long and it went to our database. And that was great, but now we can reach so many more people and be, you know, timely about that. And I just, I love the results of it. We have fun doing it. So. And, and we, well, when we look at, we track all of our sales. We track all of our sales and, the, and almost every single sale, one of the pain, one of the points that they came in contact with us is the podcast. Yeah. It's also usually the book, but it's one of those types of things, right? So if you can, um, you know, it's not enough just to do a podcast. You have to do it consistently. We've done 2000 shows almost. That's the wow. discipline. Um, yeah. and, also, and something else too, that's really changed in the past, like, uh, probably two years, which is great. People don't really expect a high production value on yeah. podcasts, which means you can grab just your most basic, your own, your iPhone has got the best mic on it ever. And you can just do a podcast on, and just, you know, that is what's making yeah. this, uh, you know, podcasting revolution just get started. I totally agree. Well, it's easy to get into. It's also great convenience. I know that Clubhouse has a great following, but podcast has a much bigger following oh, because sure. it's mm -hmm. all about the convenience of when I want to listen to it and how I want to. Hey, listen, before we go, I want to ask one last question and I want to give you a little plug for your book because you wrote this great book called Harris Rules and you're no BS, I'm going to say no bullshit, practical step-by-step -step guide to finally become rich and free. What is your favorite Harris rule? Well, she wrote 95% oh, of the book, so you get the answer. Gosh, uh, what is my favorite one? Oh, there's so many. No one's ever asked that before. That's, That's strange. A good question. You know, I, I have to say, and it seems so basic for people that are used to being in the sales space, but furiously fast lead follow-up, be there when the customer wants their question answered. We did a podcast today that was based on answer your phone. And we joke that like, there's this really new cool app out there and it, it's right there on your phone. And it, it's, it's called, called the, the, it's, it's called the, the answer phone. button. <laughs> and what you do, it's super secret. There's a lot of coaching involved in this. You talk into it when it rings, yeah. you know? So, and, and I say that that's my favorite uh, rule from a coaching perspective, because we've had so many coaching clients say that just answering their phone and stop hiding out from business and having all these elaborate workarounds and landing pages and callback systems and drip systems, you know, that that has changed their life. It's changed their business. And they, they've seen growth year over year of 30 to 50% by being available. I love that. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I put my email right here so people can email me. Do you know how many emails I get as a result of this? People watching it on TV or people listening, or I sometimes will even put my cell phone number up there. We do. Yeah, we use and our it's cell phone awesome. number. Right? Yeah. You know, so easy. The, the less the less opt-ins, less Mickey Mouse you're asking someone to do, yeah. the more people you're going to have wanting to do business with you. We always give our cell phones, but let me answer the let me answer your question too. So if you want ever, this is, I don't remember what it's chapter, like, it's like chapter it's four. Um, but if you want ever increasing levels of success, you have to do what you don't want to do when you don't want to do it at the highest level. 
which is the antithesis of much wow. much of what people are being taught. Follow your passion, the money will follow. Right. You know, blah, 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 blah. The hard stuff. Do the hard stuff. Well, it's proactive. Do what you don't want to do, which right. is a lot of things in business, right? When you don't want to do it, which is virtually all the time, <laughs> and you have to do it at a high level, you're not just going to dabble, try it out, you know, sample some things and then be judgy about it. You have to actually invest in it. You have to have that energy and enthusiasm about what you're trying to do and hone your skill. Do it at the highest level. Don't just play around. Well, that's a, it's, it's great advice. In fact, everyone should go look at those two or three things they have on their list that they keep writing down over and over and over. Yeah. There's some real gems, some nuggets. Tim, Julie, thanks so much for being with me today. Thanks for being a part of C-Suite Radio. We're so excited to have you as headliners, one of our top headliners on the network. You just joined us, but already your numbers are spiking. I saw like a 50% increase. It was, was amazing. Great. So fabulous to see. I want to pull back in, Greg. I want to pull back in, Tricia. We're going to have some Q&A time. And Tricia and, and Greg, I tell you, one of the great things that I learned from this interview, I don't feel depressed like I was in 2008 and 2009. When, when that time period hit, I was worried about what this country was going to be in. And we all were. And guess what happened? We were in the in the toilet for a long time. They're giving us some great information about this is not going to be the case. They're reaffirming that this is going to go fast. Get ready for it. Buckle up, buttercup, you know, get in the saddle and start riding because that's what we're going to start seeing with business. We're already seeing it at the C-Suite Network. It was great to have Tim and Julie reaffirm that. Let's go to some Q&A, shall we? C-Suite Radio. Absolutely. So Tim and Julie, thank you so much, Jeffrey. It's always an amazing conversation. Uh, but this is stupendous from the personal perspective, as well as the business perspective. And we have so many great questions for you. So Kathleen Caldwell is our uh, chair of our Women's Leadership Council, uh, one of our thought council and faculty leaders across C-suite. And she said, you know, what a phenomenal conversation. What would you, the, the two of you, Tim and Julie, recommend to realtors and brokers to stand out to buyers and sellers? How can realtors and brokers elevate themselves in a very crowded marketplace of competitors? Well, that's a great question. And, and we talked a lot about being the listing agent. In today's market, the listing agent always wins. So in order to be the listing agent, you have to have listing skills. So that's the most important thing. This is a market where you will not survive very long if you don't work on that ability to actually deliver. So her question was, uh, and I, you know, cause we get that all the time was essentially uh, would the typical answer from pretty much everyone else would be work on your brand, work on your logo, work on your pretty website, do a lot more media, do a lot more, you know, do some TikTok videos and everything. And that is look, that's pretty much the worst thing you can be spending your time on in a market like this. You need to be doing things that are going to proactively put you in front of sellers. So you can list houses. If you want to, be relevant in this real estate market, just be the listing agent. When you when you have one listing, you're going to generate in a market like this 50 buyers. And then to Julie's listings. And so. then to Julie's earlier point, make sure you pick up the phone when they call. Yeah. Because half of those buyers are also going to have houses to sell. And then the snowball starts. Yeah, I must know how many agents are out there going, oh God, it's another buyer call. I've got so many buyers, but we teach them a, a very, you know, little known script. Which home in the area do you plan on selling? Because many buyer calls are listing calls in disguise, but they're, you know, a lot of agents are so exhausted from working with buyers, they don't even call them back. I love that reframe. And by the way, uh, Tim and Julie live this philosophy too, because I was telling them earlier about our Celebrates event on Friday evening. And Tim, Tim immediately said, yes, yes, and yes, whatever you ask, we'll be there. <laughs> um, so love it. Greg, I know you have a question. Yeah, well, we have a question from Juliet Chatan. 
She says, hi, everyone. I have a home staging company in California. What do Tim and Julie see happening concerning life staging and virtual staging in the coming years? Tim and Julie, the stage is yours. Learn how to do virtual staging because the, even after COVID, the expectation is uh, that people are going, real staging in expensive houses is extraordinarily expensive and extraordinarily important. And virtual staging never really got any legs because of the fact that people were expect the expectation, the consumer behavior was to go to the house. But now COVID has changed. COVID has basically brought uh, what would have taken maybe 10 plus years um, and, and condensed it down to 18 months in terms of the expectations that people have for lifestyle, for just everything. Everything's changed, right? Uh, and so virtual staging is essentially going to be a widely acceptable, uh, whereas before it had been something that maybe some people did. And, you know, you get the difference. Everything's changed. Yeah, and especially considering how comfortable people are now finding a house online and buying a house online and the migration out of the urban environment into the less urban environment. We have a lot more cross uh, moving city to, to rural and then state to state. You know, not everybody's going to just run over and see the listing. So good for her for having that staging company, though. That's pretty cool. Uh, the next question actually fits perfectly with that question. Nancy May is one of our executive leaders in C-suite as well. And she's saying uh, when she sold her home in Connecticut, they did the full staging and so on. Now they're in Florida in a house they're going to be selling. And she's hearing that maybe staging isn't quite as important there. How do you know when it is important, how much to do? And specifically, uh, Central Florida is, uh, is um, uh, what she was asking about in terms of whether we're expecting the market to soften at all as well. No and no. Yeah, I, I mean, look at what she's competing against. If she's virtually the only home on the market, it's not going to have to spend a lot of money on staging. No. Okay. Good to know. So and the market's the market's not turning around anytime soon. It just isn't. That you know, the def, even if interest rates go up, it's it's that would be actually good for the market. Honestly, if interest rates went up, that would be good. But the demographics right now are as continuing. We could you know argue inflation or appreciation, whatever's going on, but the end result's the same: lack of inventory, or it's causing lack of inventory. So we have a few more questions, then we'll let you go. Um, so Jeffrey mentioned that he said after the the bust of two thousand eight, he had more trepidation. So, you know, what happened during the, you know, that was a housing crisis back in 2008, and it seems like we recovered. So uh, how do we make sure that we're not repeating history here now that everyone is running around and buying homes again and becoming realtors again? So how do we make sure that this time is indeed different? Record equity. There's more equity in homes right now than there's ever been at any time, like ever. So record equity. So if you think about Right now, there are a big, let's just say worst case happens and on the Upper East Side, just trying to uh, make Greg a little scared, right? <laughs> Why do you keep picking on me? <laughs> let's just say, let's just say property values were to drop by like 10%. The market would absorb it instantly because there's people that are just right. waiting around to buy properties. And even if you had a certain percentage of people not catch up their forbearances, not resume, just because they're missing payments does not mean they're a short sale. There's still so much equity there. That person can still sell their home and still walk away with some money to spend somewhere else. There's also no uh, underlying endemic causes like there were last go around. Appraisals actually matter. You know, before it wasn't really regulated. Something, it would magically appraise. Now, you know, there's a real appraisal. People have to have actual down payments. Lenders are much more strict. We don't have a big subprime loan crisis. So the, the factors are completely different. Even though there's a lot of people out there trying to say, well, this is just like that time. This is not like that time. And then we have what Tim mentioned with, you know, the generations coming up with Generation Z getting ready to buy. 
If that were the only thing, we still would have low inventory. And now we have this all fueled by the pandemic and people wanting to move and all the enthusiasm and low interest rates. So we we see virtually no reason and to be. The, the government out came out yesterday and said that they're going to they're putting to, uh, together a set of essentially rules because effectively the mortgage markets, except in the very upper end, are controlled by the government. And the government's coming out and they're going to tell the servicers or the banks essentially not to foreclose. And you can read this, there's three points. The, the, the essence of it was, is there's going to be no foreclose. Nobody wants it. Nobody wants it, it ain't gonna happen. No, no government person wants to have that on their watch. And now it's different because they know what that felt like. Yeah. No, before, nobody knew what was gonna happen. So it was hard to be afraid of it. Now there, there's this whole history, which everybody lives in fear of, nobody wants that to happen. Except on the Upper East Side. <laughs> Damn! <laughs> <laughs> C-Suite Radio. I have one more question in regards to uh, second homes, because you know one of the things that we also saw during the the, two, the run up to the 2008 housing crisis is that people were buying second homes in Florida, and then they were flipping it, and they were buying two houses and three houses. You know, you get four houses, you get a hotel, at least a monopoly. So how how are we making sure that uh, this is not happening now? And what do you suggest to people who are interested? in buying a second house? I mean, there's a lot of questions there, right? Yeah. So you're asking, first of all, how are they preventing people from basically over leveraging into real estate? It's what we just talked about. Down payments, yeah. credit requirements, it's just a hell of a lot harder. I mean, back then, back in the crisis, it was you know, ninja loans, no income, no job, no, no verifications, no assets. There was nothing. Nowadays, it doesn't work like that. Getting a mortgage now is hard, it really is. hard. <laughs> Lenders are quite strict with credit, with ratios. You, you can't do that uh, extra leveraging one house to the next by two by the hotel like you could back then because of the regulations. Um, and I think the other thing is that you, one of the common things we hear is people are keeping their vacation rentals. They're keeping their second home. They're, getting, they're selling their original home. So that inventory is scarce as well. I do see uh, you know, vacation rent by owner, home away. Those properties are doing very well right now. Some of our coaching clients prospect in those markets, those secondary and third home markets, and the common response they get is, oh, no, I'm doing really well with this property. I'm never going to sell it because people are staying. If you look at those numbers, people are staying for longer lengths of time. Instead of staying for a week or 10 days, they're renting it for an entire 30 days. At the same time, you have certain cities that are cracking down and saying you can only have 30 day rental at a time. You can't do super short uh, rentals. So you know, I think it's a good time to own that kind of property, whether you're going to use it or you're going to turn it into a vacation rental. They're doing very well. There's no downsiding owning a single family home right now. Just there's none. You know, I mean, there, there is if, it, if you believe that inflation is going to happen. Well, you know, owning real estate is your, uh, your friend. Uh, the only thing that would make that wrong would be hyperinflation. If you if you believe this is just essentially supply and demand that's being caused by these big demographic you know, changes, then own real estate. Even the biggest bears that you read their books, like I won't mention names, but there's some people that are you know, doom and gloom type. Um, and Julie and I always try to expose ourselves to different ways of thinking, making sure we're not pigeonholing our own Believing our own thoughts. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so even the biggest bears out there are all saying, you know, buy, you know, buy gold, expect the da-da-da-da-da, oh, but also buy a house. You know, yeah. so if you can lock in a low, a 30 year fixed rate mortgage right now, you're always going to need someplace to live. And here's here's what's really mind boggling. If you buy a house in a neighborhood that then, you know, obviously in a neighborhood and the house appreciates at a rate that, like, say, it appreciates by 10 percent and your interest rate was like less than 3 percent or 3 percent. Aren't you effectively living in that house for free? 
Isn't that amazing? Yeah. You know, so. And even if we were to wake up tomorrow morning somehow with 10 or 20% more inventory, what do you think would happen to that inventory? Gone. Like that. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of runway on that. Yeah. So I have a couple more questions. And the first is we're not finished picking on Greg. Um, we have <laughs> Diane Brescher who wants to know more about the New York uh, market and whether it's really a time, you know, to buy a uh, rental um, it, you know, or is it better just to, um, is it better just to be buying as much as you can? What, what is your, what is your, what is your advice in terms of that market specifically? I, I mean, if you're looking at, it depends on Manhattan, there's, let's just talk about Manhattan, mm-hmm. right? So if, if there's no one market in Manhattan and then the answer is different depending on what the price point is. The answer is different on what kind of building it is. And what your needs are. Right. You know, if you are a true New Yorker and your kids are embedded in those schools and all of your, you know, all of your family is right there on, in that neighborhood, then your decision is going to be different than somebody who's maybe speculating and going to try and ride that market back up. But like different the, people, you know, you have the Dorman buildings. Those are always your traditional price differentiators. But now the manner in which you own the building, that's going to have a lot of difference. in you know, essentially what your expectation is. But so there's not a simple answer to that. New York's probably no, not de- probably definitely the most complicated market there is to sort of it's understand it because you have you'll have buildings that basically have the same view that are looking at, you know, whatever. And yet one building will be way more desirable than this other just because these little nuanced differences. Yes, yeah. we know. Hey, so I think I think we have, we have one or two quick questions. So here's a question is, how will you know deep in your insides when the market is going to turn? So what are the signals to you that, you know, I know it right now you're seeing a long runway and clear skies ahead. So how will you know before as experts, before the rest of us, that it's time to sell at the top? We know from, and we knew back in 06. In 06, we started preparing our coaching clients for a real estate correction because we saw market gyrations that were abnormal, behavior that was abnormal from the from the markets. We saw an example. We Julie and I were watching San Diego, Las Vegas, and actually in Miami, and we were watching New York. And we watched the inventory go from really low inventory seller's market, and then it spiked, and then it sold off. Okay, then maybe that was nothing. We didn't really think much of it. Did it a couple more times, and the third time, it didn't sell off. So we watched for that. But the, the other thing is, is like a lot of people will answer that question to watch for notice of defaults. Depending on the state, when someone misses a payment, the bank files a notice of default. But what we saw in the last crash, and it's going to happen again, is there won't be there will be delayed uh, a notice of defaults. So that's not a really good indicator. The way we know is because we have coaching clients all over the country. Everywhere. So Everywhere. what would happen is, you know, and, and our coaches have hundreds of calls every week. We're on the phone a lot, broadly of through the country. So what we would see is instead of multiple offers, fairly predictably in almost every price range, we start to have fewer offers. Instead of zero days on the market, we start to have seven days, two weeks on the market. And that's not going to happen instantly, but we will see it gradually. And usually what happens is we'll have two or three calls like that. Coaches will report back. We're seeing something's happening here. And then we'll watch it for a while and see if that's temporary or if that's a real thing. So you would see longer days on the market, fewer competitive offers. And you would start to see instead of a high list to sell price ratio where something sells for 103%, 110% of list, you start to see itself maybe 98% of list. And now maybe buyers are starting to get a little bit more power and there's a little more negotiating. 
Sellers are not as able to push buyers around. Buyers would stop waiving appraisals and home inspections and things of that nature. But our podcast um, listeners tell us, honestly. All the time. Our podcast listeners will text us or they'll email us and they'll say, this is what's happening in our market. Or occasionally on our podcast, we'll say, can you guys do a CMA and send it to us for your particular market? And we, we're, you know, we're content information junkies because we have to be frosty about that information to do a good job, not only on the podcast, but for our coaching clients. Well, and here's something weird. Normally you would see, you know, agents log into their MLS and their systems and they get a hot sheet. What's hot, what's not what's being price reduced now when they log in they see price increases Mm -hmm. yeah so when that stops happening and we start to see price reductions that's another leading indicator and honestly buyer agent commissions when buyer agent commissions go from a dropping until there's now they're starting to increase in other words sellers are having to offer more incentive to get buyers agents to bring their buyers to their house these are all the things builders as well so right now a lot of builders are saying unless you've registered your client you're willing to be on a wait list we're not even paying a buyer side commission. Yep. And we saw that before in the previous boom. They had gone from, you know, paying the normal rate and then they said, "No, we have enough demand, we don't have to do that." And then within what, less than 2 years, we'll never for, we tell the story in the yeah. podcast, we were driving between Southern California and, and Las Vegas, I think on 15 or something. Mm-hmm. And we saw a big bill, billboard around Victorville that said, buy one, get one free. Buy a house, it was a builder's billboard. A builder's billboard. And so, you know, we're always around new construction. We would visit these and they would say, oh, by the way, we're paying like two points more than a normal buyer commission. Right. And we're gonna throw in a pool and you can have a landscaping package and we've got this other inventory house and we'll discount that 20% while you're here. So, I mean, there's a wide pendulum swing. And it's not just going to go immediately. And I don't think it'll be as extreme in any way. Mm-hmm. I think we'll see little subtleties, little cracks in the market. here. But no time soon. Yeah. No. So we have a completely different uh, perspective in this last quick question. Um, Kathleen Caldwell, I mentioned, is the chair of our Women's Leadership Council. And she had a really interesting question. And just as we look at the different industries and, and um, you know, the context of, of time and roles and so on, she says, you know, historically, women have dominated the, re- the residential market uh, as realtors and brokers. What about the commercial markets? What does that look like? Definitely. There's there's a couple of organizations that I will be speaking with in the next um, or speaking for in the next couple of months. And definitely women are getting more prevalent in the commercial space and not letting go of the residential space. Lots of professional women getting into that, both as investors themselves, as well as commercial commercial agents and brokers. And I think that's really exciting. That's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm trying to you know help them along as best we can with what we do. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.